my name is Jasmine Smith, and I'm an entrepreneur and a community activist and a community council president. So before we get into questions about you being the host of rallies here in Anchorage, what was your personal response to learning about the killing of George Floyd? Yeah, my, my my first response was very emotional. I mean, it made me sad. It was, you know, hurtful. It just reaffirmed that we had a long way to go. But as soon as I found out, I realized something had to be done here in Alaska because even though our problems don't look the same as the lower 48, we have problems too. So after the pain, I just jumped into action and I just said it's time to do something. Can you describe that moment? that you decided to host the I Can't Breathe rally in Anchorage? Yeah, it was really interesting because everybody kept asking me, like, what organization is hosting this? What is the organization? What is the business? And that's when it dawned on me that people are too caught up in being protected by an organization, having a name to be behind. So when I was planning this event, my number one thought process was I'm not going to affiliate it with any business or any nonprofit. I want it to be hosted by me, Jasmine Smith, a black woman, a mom. So it was very, very vulnerable for me. And it also allowed me to see who really supported me because it, it, it wasn't saved by anybody. It was just a person who cares and said enough is enough when it comes down to it. We're all people, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I really like what you just said about how it was hosted by an individual. It was hosted by a black woman and a mom. In what way do you think that that means more than an organization or a corporation? I mean, any organization and corporation is like heavily regulated. They have rules, guidelines, policies, procedures. And when it really comes down to liability, you're safe because you're one step removed. But at the end of the day, who you are as a person, that's stripping it down bare. That's just that's just all out there. There's nothing protecting you. There's nothing to fall back on. It's just you, yourself, and your word. So I, I feel like as a person, it allowed more people to relate to me. They didn't see a logo. You know, they didn't see a mission statement. They just saw the face of this black woman whose Facebook profile is George Floyd, whose Facebook photos are her kids. And it just made it resonate and they understood the urgency more. Did you have any expectations for what the rally would look like? Yeah, honestly, I thought I'd probably have maybe 200 people, um, some face masks, a few folks in their car. <laughs> I, I really wasn't thinking it was going to be as big as it was or lead to the movement that it did. I had very small expectations given it was planned on a Wednesday and held on a Saturday. But of course, that's not how it turned out. <laughs> so, And how did it turn out? Yeah, we had a couple thousand. So uh, we had at least a thousand, maybe a thousand or two thousand in the actual parking lot. But that doesn't include all the folks that came and they were in their cars. Um, the manager of REI was looking off the roof and he said that we had every single parking spot filled on both sides. And then when we listened on to the listeners, when we streamed it on the radio, that itself had a couple uh, thousand listeners as well. So it was very cool, but the overall reach was around 5,000. And I think it kicked off the movement really nicely. That's great. So coming from the perspective of, oh, we might get 
a hundred, two hundred people to seeing thousand people. What did that feel like? Oh, that felt amazing. And when I was on the microphone talking at one point in the program, I was like, wow, there's a lot of people here. I think the significance for my rally too was it was the first one. So everybody was just kind of like feeling something, but nobody knew what to do. And just because, you know, we've done rallies in the past, we've had Black Lives Matter organization up here for a few years, it just felt fitting that that set the tone and kick it off for everybody. Did anything in particular stand out to you? Yeah, I would definitely say two things. The emotion of so many black men. I've never seen that many black men cry in one space together. And it felt like for them, it was emotionally affirming, but also draining. And you could see the relief that they could finally express how they were feeling and someone got it. Um, I think also the solidarity you know, having some of these different uh, communities come up there and say, we stand with you and we understand that was amazing. And, you know, it's led to some even stronger relationships. So I think those two things really stood out in my mind. There's a picture of this really big black man hugging his, I think it's his wife and just kind of crying, you know, at the rally. And that means a lot because it just reminds us that no matter how somebody looks, people are people and they mm -hmm. experience what they experience. You mentioned that the emotion of black men stood out to you. Why specifically black men? Well, because a lot of times black men are the brunt of all things bad, right? When you think about racism and prejudice, the history of it in our country, they are on the top of the food chain in terms of getting it the worst from being a suspect to being, you know, the backbones of labor on plantations, but on the flip side, also having to somehow fake normal and lead a family and raise kids. And it's hard enough being a man where you don't always think you can show your emotions, mm -hmm. but I feel like, especially in the black community, uh, black men don't have as many opportunities to just let it all out and cry without that fear of looking soft. So for them to be afforded that space where they could just be vulnerable and know that it was okay and they were supported, that's a huge step coming from our community. You know, a lot of times you don't see them cry until like someone dies or whatever the case is, but you know, you're a man as well. Like, do you get to just always show your emotions? There's a different expectation, you know, as a man. Mm -hmm. So seeing that uh, exchange of feelings was a big deal for me personally. And I know it was for a lot of others. You know, in, in the wake of all this, what kinds of conversations have stuck out to you the most? Well, I think this, the kickoff conversations, just recognizing we have racism and, and there's biases and the conversations that recognize we have work to do. We've come a long way. I don't take that from anybody, but we have work to do. And just hearing from some people, and not even just Black people, just people who have experienced racism or police brutality, I feel like those conversations are huge because it's reaffirming, you know? It's easy to turn a blind eye and act like it's not there and it's not that bad, but it happens. And you don't know that until someone gets the chance to tell their story. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the police presence at the rally? It was at a zero. So I did invite them to come. Um, I did let them know I was going to do my event because, you know, I, I have a really good relationship with some police officers. I always communicate with them anytime I have a rally or an event. I would have loved to see them there. 
Um, I think that would have been a big show of solidarity. So it disappoints me that they chose not to come, you know, so there was no police presence at the rally. They did not come at all. Um, the only time I saw them was towards the end of the event when people were standing on the side of the road with their signs and a few of them drove by and honked their horns and did Black Lives Matter, you know, their fists in the air. But other than that, I did not see them. So I can't comment on their presence because there wasn't one at all. You know, you you alluded to this earlier, but how do you think Alaska fits into the national conversation about racism and police brutality? Well, our stats show that we do have one of the highest instances of police brutality. Um, I can say that I don't think the top group affected in Alaska is black people. Um, I believe it is native people in indigenous communities. Um, I think because it doesn't show itself as outright violence as much as other places, there is a misconception that it doesn't happen. But microaggressions and low-key racism is just as damaging as outright, I'm going to beat you up and drag you in the street. Mm -hmm. So Alaska definitely has a place in it. It happens here. You know, we have a history of it. and But it's just kind of swept under the rug. You know, um, good example, the Community uh, Police Task Force was formed in the 80s. And that was formed as a result of um, one of the pastor's grandsons getting his door kicked in in his house and he just got killed. So I just remind people like, it doesn't look the same here, but it's definitely here. And we're not that far from them. Like basically right now is a time that we can make a change and not become an outright Minneapolis, but we're on the track. Which pastor was this? Um, it was a uh, pastor Patterson from Shiloh, you know, RIP to, to his grandson for sure. And it's just things like that. People don't know the history, you know? So I don't fault people all the time for ignorance, but I do fault them if they don't strive to enlighten themselves so you know with the talks of apd up here it's easy to say we don't have a problem when people aren't given the opportunity to talk about the problem and say what happened to them and it just gets swept under the rug do you have any anecdotes or stories personal or otherwise that you bring up um, when people ask about racism in alaska oh definitely i mean first and foremost i was raised in eagle river <laughs> I went to Chuyak. We had like 2,000 students, maybe 20 of us were black. So it was like a constant, either either the students were awesome or it was just ignorant all the time. So that alone shaped my lenses, just being raised in Eagle River before it was more diverse like it is now. But I mean, in terms of like, you know, other racism and microaggressions, like I was telling other people, it manifests in like, doing work on a house and a neighbor calls the police and says there's suspicious people across the road, even though you're pulled up with your company branded logo van and your outfits on, you still are suspicious. Um, it takes place in the form of doing your job as a door dasher and you come in in the same mask as everybody else. And they say to you, Oh, LOL, don't rob us. You know, uh, it takes place in the form of going into banks and waiting to be helped, but they don't acknowledge you or you get over there and you hear them, you know, give requirements for a loan to the person in front of you, but then it's you and they give you a, a list so long, it's almost impossible to, to get on, you know, it's being 
followed because the audio said suspicious black female and they pull up in front of your house and you know the only reason they calm down is because another officer pulls up and vouches for you and just says like oh no she's a community council president she's good you know so it's like these experiences when you walk it you know it's there and you feel it but how do you convince it to somebody who chooses not to see it and i think that's where we are how do you feel those situations affect who you eventually become as an adult? Well, I think um, racism instances have one of two outcomes. And I've seen this just from going to Chugiak. It's either A, you try to assimilate and minimize your differences. And that manifests in the place of girls of color, you know, trying to have like blonde hair or the blue contacts or just trying their best to act like everybody else. So they're not singled out because they're different. or it manifests in you finding your voice and then you come out strong. And then when you do come out strong and you start saying what it is, then you get told you're angry. And then there's this third subculture where you don't try to assimilate, but you also don't try to speak out. You are just quiet. And I think, you know, when it comes to it, the goal is to empower people and young people to be proud of themselves and who they are to embrace their differences, but then also when they see that racism, which they will at some point in their life, be able to call it out and be strong enough to say, it's okay that I called it out and don't feel like you did something wrong by calling it out. Mm -hmm. So I want to get back to, to the rallies and I had this thought the other day. So there's been a lot of talk about looting at the rallies around the country and I think a distinction needs to be made between looters and protesters. Looters are just thieves and opportunists, whereas the people who are protesting, they're peacefully assembling to bring attention to a long-standing problem in the United States, which is of police brutality and institutional and systemic racism. So my train of thought was, I think, a logical one. And that is that someone who is socially conscious enough to protest an ongoing injustice is not all of a sudden turning in or going to turn into a thief. Do you have any thoughts about the looters versus protesters debate? Yeah, so this is the reality. You act out when you don't feel like you're being listened to. You act out when you feel like your voice is not being heard. You act out out of desperation and a need to draw attention to something. So I understand in some instances where people feel like, you know what, I'm going to burn this down. It's just a structure. I have to let them know I'm here. Mm -hmm. I do believe there is a distinction because if you look at some of the footage, there are deflectors who come out and they're the ones looting and burning things down and setting things on fire. And it isn't even our people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think there's a difference in people who are like genuinely upset. And you're like, I had enough. Do you hear me? Do you see me? Versus just, I'm going to get me a big screen TV. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I, I definitely think there's a difference. And, you know, for me, when somebody gets to that point where they say, I got to burn it all down, that's that's a bold statement. That tells you there is a serious, fundamental, bigger issue where we have surpassed talking and they need to get your attention. And the reality is history has shown that's happened a few times and you have to look at after it happened, what was the catalyst for change? Normally something comes out of it. And I think that's kind of where we are. You know, what would you, 
what would you say to someone who counters Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter? Uh, okay, so I would say there are literally three analogies that are my favorite. Um, if you are at a breast cancer awareness rally and they are talking about breast cancer, you wouldn't go in there and yell, but all cancers matter, right? Mm -hmm. If you are going to the doctor and you have injured a part of your body, the doctor says, you know, identify your chief complaint. They don't counter you and say, I'm sorry you broke your leg, but your other leg matters, right? Mm -hmm. So it's reminding people all lives do matter, obviously, but the black ones are part of all. So if the black ones don't matter, how do all lives matter? Sometimes in communities, there are things happening. There are issues that need to be addressed. And it's okay to give each community individual attention. You know, if something was happening in the Latinx community or the Polynesian community, and we needed to have our Polynesian lives matter signs or Latinx lives matter signs, we would do that. So right now, we have one community that is hurting a little bit more, getting killed a little bit more, and going through a little bit more that requires attention. It doesn't take away from the other community. So I believe firmly in order for all lives to matter, the black ones have to matter. And you have to be okay knowing that sometimes you're going to talk about one of each life, but it doesn't take away from the other lives. Mm -hmm. Are you hopeful or pessimistic about change coming from all this? I am both. I am hopeful because attention has been finally brought to it again. I am leery that people are going to forget in a few weeks. So, you know, I, it feels different this time because I've never been invited to so many conversations about racism and stuff. So it feels different. And I hope and I pray it keeps going and people understand it has to be a priority even when it's not trending and in the social media platforms, all that stuff. So as of right now, I think Alaska's on the right track and I think some good change is going to come out of this. Why do you think it's different this time? I mean, I think this time it's acceptance. It's, it's being honest and saying, wow, we see it now or wow, it's happening. And I understand. So I don't know. For for me, it, it's cool. You know, it's this, I don't know. I just feel like in the past, it's been swept under the rug. And I've just never seen so many people that are like willing to talk about it. It just feels different. I can't even describe it. Well, I think to your point that it feels different. I think that um, the fact that there is a pandemic still happening right now and people felt that there is this enormous humanitarian issue at, at hand that i need to go out there and show my support regardless right. of a pandemic yes and i think that was a big thing for me like everybody's like what about what about this what about safety and i'm like well yeah but this is this is this is worth the risk and it's a hard thing for me to say but I had to do it. I can't take it back. I'm glad I did it and it needed to be done. And it, yeah, we were in a pandemic, but you know what? Sometimes it's worth fighting for. I mean, if you even, even the most peaceful civil rights movements, they had bloody days and risk. And I, I think it was worth, we had to do what we had to do. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, Go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber.
Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. <laughs>